This is VLX number 46, Jesus Heals Many, Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. God grant you his peace. Let's begin in prayer. Nome Pachi Sefirit, Spiritu Santi, Amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. Nome Pachi Sefirit, Spiritu Santi, Amen. Matthew chapter 8, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. We're going to look at some really cool words in the Greek. Maybe leave me a comment on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter. I don't have comments turned on on my blog. But maybe let me know if you want me to try to include the Greek words on the screen in the future. Wasn't able to do it today due to time, so I won't always be able to do it due to time constraints. But let me know if you do want me to make the time, if it is beneficial to put those Greek words on the screen. Also, whether I put up the Greek words on the screen or not, I think it's okay to write in your Bible. So as I give you these Greek words and also some Latin words today, uh, feel free to write those in the Bible. Again, unless someone wants to leave me a comment on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube to let me know that that's not in concert with the tradition of the Catholic Church, and I'll happily submit to that. Okay, so Jesus enters today into the house of Peter, and he's going to heal uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and then he goes outside and heals all these people who are oppressed by diseases and demons. And I want to tell you how Lapide puts this in the chronology, rather not how he does, but how the church fathers have extricated all of the Gospels to put them in chronological order. So just to, just two sentences here so you can get it in chronological order. Uh, Lapide says, quote, The true order of the narrative is then as follows, as is plain from Mark and Luke. After Christ had called Peter and Andrew from their fishing to follow him, as Matthew relates in 4.18, he entered into Capernaum. There he preached in the synagogue and healed the demoniac. From thence he proceeded to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law of her fever. He also says, This miracle and the other works of Christ which Matthew proceeds to relate as far as the end of chapter 9 took place before the healing of the leper and the centurion's servant, before indeed the Sermon on the Mount. So that's interesting. Even though today comes after the Sermon on the Mount, they are insisting that this actually took place before the Sermon on the Mount. So that doesn't overturn the inerrancy of Scripture. It just shows that not all the writers kind of follow this Germanic idea of writing things down exactly in the same order. But every word is still infallible. Every word is still inspired. Every word is historically true. But there's actually no problem that, that there can be um, uh, kind of some fast-forwarding and some rewinding as we uh, go through the gospel. But it's absolutely all historically true. Okay, so here we have the mother-in-law of Peter, and she's lying there. It says in verse 14b, lying and burning up. Um, fever in Greek here, it's a past participle, perususan, or puresusan, based on the Greek word for fire, p-u-r, pur, if we were to write the Cyrillic in Latin. And then when the Cyrillic is written in the Latin, sometimes it's actually written as p-y-r. That's where we get words like pyromaniac. Okay, so what does Jesus do now? He frees her from it. The verb for free right there, it's the same as to dissolve or absolve or release. A fakin right there is the, is the verb. So put those two together and it's literally saying, Christ released her from the burning fire of that fever. Christ released her from the burning fire of that fever. 
Now, even though Peter's mother-in-law wasn't suffering with lust, some church fathers use this as an analogy as to how Jesus can free a person from lust since they saw lust as a burning temptation in the loins. But how can Jesus touch us to free us from the burning of that lust? Lapidy says that we modern Christians are giving this beautiful solution. He writes, Whosoever then thou art who laborest under the fever of concupiscence, I do not say that thou shouldst embrace a monastic life, or that thou should macerate thy body by hair shirts or the scourge, or drink nothing but water. I suggest an easy and efficacious remedy, frequently receive Holy Communion, and by so doing receive Christ into the house of thy soul. He is a virgin, and the son of a virgin, and by his own virgin flesh, he will extinguish this fire. Of course, Lapide would be the first to say one must confess any lustful thoughts or actions before receiving Holy Communion. That wasn't as much of a problem when he wrote this in the year 1600. And of course, confession always before Holy Communion if physical or even mental consent was given to lust. Of course, it's only mortal sin mentally if you, with, quote, full deliberation, resolve to take pleasure in such delight, end quote, as St. Francis de Sales says. Otherwise, if you conquer that temptation before that, it's either venial sin or possibly even meritorious. Anyway, let's continue in the Bible in Matthew 8. So what happens next as Jesus leaves his mother-in-law's home after healing her? Is it that he just barely gets out the door or maybe he gets pretty far? I picture that he doesn't get very far before all these people come to him seeking healing, including those who are oppressed or possessed by demons. Now, let's look at the word there for possess. The word today in Matthew 8 is daimonizominos. Daimonizominos is a past part of participle, meaning demonized or demon-infested, possessed. And what does Jesus do to them? He ejects them. He ejects them out of them. The word in Greek there is exebalon. You can write that above, uh, kick them out or whatever is in your translation, but it's, it's literally eject in, in the Greek. It's exebalon. And if you think I'm exaggerating with these verb connections, type into Google etymology of eject. You're going to look up the English here, and you'll see that the English comes from the Latin infinitive yechere. E-I-C-E-R-E, yechere. An infinitive, by the way, just means it's the most basic form of a verb in either English or Latin. So, to run is an infinitive. To eat is an infinitive. To sleep is an infinitive. Well, to eject in Latin is yechere. And a conjugation of that is exactly today's verb in the Latin Vulgate, which was yechebat which is just the past participle or imperfect of yechere, again meaning to eject, and again, if you look up root word of eject in, in English, you will find that very word in Latin. So I'm not making any of this up. So Jesus is ejecting the demons from people. But why so dramatic? Because these creatures, you and me, belong to Christ, not to demons that are just bullying parasites. Christ ejects these parasites because we humans belong to the Creator who is Christ himself. They have no rights. Okay, let's talk about imaginative prayer a little bit. Maybe picture yourself, if you're doing the method of St. Ignatius of Loyola or St. Teresa of Avila, maybe picture yourself as Peter, if you're a man, or picture yourself as the mother-in-law lying in that dark room. Remember, these are the days before electricity. So imagine you're in this dark room, probably smells of the flu. Uh, you know what that can be like when, when you're sick and you don't realize uh, that anyone else coming in the room has to kind of deal with that smell. Um, so it's just this dark, dank room, probably hot itself, in the middle of Israel 2,000 years ago. And then imagine Jesus coming in from this sunny day in, in Israel into this dark room with this sick woman. Again, these were the days before electricity. But light just streams in behind Jesus. 
Is this the sun or Christ that is that light streaming into this dark room? And then he touches her hand. Now, hand is one of those words. If you just go to Mass and you hear that, it's one of those boring words we pass over. But when I was studying the Greek today, it really hit me as a very important word. Um, I don't think we think of it as important, but notice him touching her hand, both the level of intimacy and modesty in doing that. Jesus' hand touches her hand. And there's nothing overboard in the intimacy of it. But the modesty is so evident too. Think about it. A young rabbi touching an older woman's hand who is sick. How did he touch it? How are you picturing this in your mental prayer? Did he squeeze it? Or did he just delicately, did he barely touch it? Maybe he just laid his hand firmly on hers. That's personally how I picture it. He, he laid his hand very firmly on hers. And so notice how strong his hand must have been but also how pure and modest this touch was at the same time. St. John Chrysostom has these very beautiful words. Quote, There could be no approach of death where the life giver had entered. He took her by the hand, it is said. What need could there be for touching her when he had the power to command? Christ took hold of this woman's hand for life. Because Adam from a woman's hand had received death, he held her hand. What the hand of presumptuous Eve had lost, the hand of her maker might restore. He held her hand, so that the hand which had plucked a sentence from the tree of death might receive indulgence. Okay, so all these other possessed people then come to Jesus for healing. He leaves the house of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Does he get far? I said earlier, I didn't think he got very far. Now, all these people who have these diseases and demons, remember under the law, the Jews rightly didn't want to touch that which was unclean, like dead bodies, because under the law, death reigned. But, as Christ is life itself, death has no power over him. And that's why Christ is not tainted when he touches a dead body. Why? Because he is grace, which does not overturn the law, but rather fulfills the law. St. Matthew wrote today this really interesting line about Jesus doing all these exorcisms and exorcisms and healings. Quote, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. End quote. It's Isaiah 53, 4. You can go look at that. It's the suffering servant. Now, what does being the suffering servant have to do with all these healings? Well, in some sense, this man of sorrows was suffering for our salvation at every moment that he walked the earth. So, in some sense, he probably took those diseases on himself every day, including that day. But, he was also a man of perfect health and strength. So I tend to picture him sending all of these diseases, which again are the effects of sin. This is the Catholic faith. Either personal or communal, these diseases, effect of sin, to himself on the cross. So I guess what I'm saying is in some sense, Christ sends all these diseases and sins to himself on the cross three years later. That could be a very dramatic thing to picture in your imaginative prayer. Now, why does he do this? It's to fulfill that line, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Well, what's the connection between healing these people and the crucifixion? Well, he healed and ejected demons, but there was a price to pay. All the church fathers maintain some form of substitutionary atonement that's not popular in almost any seminary today, at least unless you're going to like a Latin mass seminary. That's a very unpopular idea, but the people who overturn it in today's seminaries, they're very wrong because, because I don't know of a single church father that rejects the substitutionary atonement. Um, in other words, someone had to foot the bill for our healing. Because disease is not an arbitrary effect of sin, but it's a direct result of sin. And again, this is communal, not individual. So I'm not saying, say, a baby dying of cancer has committed actual sins on its soul. But we today have underestimated the real 
strength of original sin, what, what this has really done to us as a people, as a single family of humanity. Disease and death is truly a result of original sin. Well, that debt must be canceled by not only an act of mercy that we all love to talk about today, but also an act of justice. Hence, what St. Peter writes under direct inspiration of the Holy Ghost, quote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, end quote. In other words, Jesus gave us life and we gave him our diseases. How sad and how beautiful is that? Jesus gave us his life and we gave him our diseases because that's the effect of our sin. Yeah, this is a substitutionary theology, but I doubt you will find a single church father who rejects substitutionary atonement in some way. Now, granted, some of the church fathers are more medical than legal in their descriptions. Some are more legal than medical in their descriptions. But just remember, it's not only Calvinists who believe in substitutionary atonement. Maybe the Calvinists just make it look kind of ugly. But we do believe in this. Notice that St. Peter in 1 Peter 2, 24 that I just quoted, and St. Matthew today, Matthew 8, 17, they're both quoting the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, 4. So, might be wrong about this, but it seems Jesus throws the effects of these sin, both sin and disease, and maybe in some sense even demons, upon himself three years in the future in the crucifixion. That would be quite a dramatic, imaginative prayer, but it seems to line up with what St. Matthew wrote. Why else would he have included healing and substitutionary theology in the same section? That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.